This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Hopefully, since we prayed twice, the scripture will be extra illuminated for us this morning. That's not good theology at all. (laughs) All right. Construction began on a tower in the Italian city of Pisa on August 9th, 1173. It was claimed to be the bell tower for the nearby cathedral, but really this tower was built to show the greatness and worth of the city of Pisa. But because of a faulty foundation built on a marshy soil, the tower now leans at a five-degree angle. They knew about the tilt when they were building the tower, but instead of admitting the mistake, they decided to build the top levels to kind of lean the opposite direction, so really the building looks kind of like a banana. Over the next several centuries, the building increased in tilt at about one millimeter every year. Until in 1990, when the Leaning Tower of Pisa was closed down to the public so that they could do some renovation and restabilization projects on it. Through a series of trial and errors, uh, they decided they would preserve the building by by trying to do a whole bunch of different things at the same time. Um, This included 800 tons of lead counterweights placed at the base. A corset to squeeze the center of the tower for stability. 10 steel anchors, heavy cables to suspend it, and even injecting liquid nitrogen into the soil in order to freeze the ground so that it couldn't sink any more than it already had. And so finally, eventually, the tower was declared stable, uh, they assume, for the next 300 years. We'll see. Over 800 years after the tower is being built, engineers are still dealing with the effects of a tower built on an unstable surface. Ironically, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, rather than being a a monument to the genius and the wealth of the city of Pisa, is actually a a monument of the foolishness of building on a faulty foundation. Now, in today's text, we're going to look at the firm foundation that God laid for his grand building project of redemption. Now, we're going to look at two things here. First, the building of God's people. And second, the beauty of God's people. 
Again, the building of God's people and the beauty of God's people. If you have your Bible or your worship folder, go ahead and get it out now because we're going to be looking at this text together in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, in verses 1 through 8, Peter borrows an extensive architectural metaphor from the Old Testament to describe the new Christian community that he's writing to. In verse 4, he says, As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So so here's the blueprint. God the Father's grand project is to construct a temple made of living stones so that he can dwell in it through the Holy Spirit, the whole thing being built upon his son Jesus, the cornerstone. That's the blueprint that's been laid out for us. Peter purposely uses this ancient analogy because he wants to describe God's work in the present by rooting his hearers in the past. He wants his hearers to know that this project didn't start in 0 AD when Jesus was born, uh, nor did it start 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago uh, in the time of the people that he's writing this to. He wants us to know that we play a pivotal role in, in God's grand design. God is and always has been living and active on his mission in this world. Look at verse six. It says, for it stands in scripture. Behold, I, God the Father, am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Peter quotes Isaiah 28, where the Lord says that he's a builder, a master builder, laying some groundwork. He quotes this passage to show that Jesus is that groundwork, that he's the cornerstone which the Lord has laid. But look with me real quick at verse seven, because interestingly enough, although God is the builder, verse seven says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So in a sense here, God is the builder, but then people are builders as well. Originally, this this verse described the Jewish people who refused and rejected the Lord's foundation, uh, but Peter uses it more broadly. He uses it to include all people. Because we're made in the image of this builder God, we ourselves are builders. You, you all know this to be true. I don't have to convince you of this because we use this metaphor all the time, right? I'm, I'm building my credit. I'm building a resume, when, when we get married, uh, we're building a future together. We build our financial portfolio. When we have children as parents, we build our family. We're, we're not, this, this metaphor is not foreign to us. We use it all the time because we know that innate to who we are is that we are builders. Now, the problem is not that we build. The problem is what foundation are we building upon? Now, in this metaphor, building is believing. Look again at verse six. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who 
do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Again, to build is to believe. When, when God laid this cornerstone, he, he brought a crossroads before all humanity. There's a decision point, accept or reject, build or stumble. And, and this is where, where it brings us, that some of us will encounter Jesus as the cornerstone and we'll see him as God sees him, as chosen and precious. And by believing, our lives will be built upon him. But others of us will encounter Jesus as the cornerstone and stumble over him. Things like, wait, wait, you're telling me that in order for this to work, I have to tear down all that I've built up in my life and have it all be rebuilt on Jesus? That's ludicrous. And, and this is why many people look at Jesus and, and anyone really who's built their lives on him and they see it as ridiculous. Now, honestly, this has been a source of struggle for me. I've had such a hard time with the fact that if the gospel is such good news, why do so many people not think so? If the gospel shows us that Jesus is chosen and precious, why do so many reject him as worthless? I can recall the faces and names of specific people with whom I shared Jesus and they left, they walked away, writing him off as though he's, he's meaningless to them. Well, first Peter has been helpful with me answering this question of why do so many people reject Jesus? I wanna look at that. But before we do, it's worth noting that in, in verse eight, it says God is not surprised that people would reject Jesus. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. He knew when he laid this cornerstone that some would stumble and some would build. Now, why do people reject Jesus? Well, I think fundamentally they reject Jesus because there's so much being, there's so much at stake in being rebuilt on top of Jesus. First, uh, in order for that to happen, we'd have to recognize that, that at this point in our lives, all that we've built, all of our achievements and accomplishments have been built on a faulty foundation. Like the builders of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, there's a sense in which maybe it's pride. I don't, I'm not really sure, but, but we don't want to go and have to tear things back down, relay a foundation, only to have it built back up again. And so when, when people see Jesus as the cornerstone, they realize everything I've done in life, in the end, in the grand design, if this is true, is meaningless unless it's founded on Jesus as the cornerstone. That's the first reason. I think the second reason is that we realize that since we are innate builders, um, we would have to then build our lives according to the blueprint of the master architect. And, and people don't wanna do that. We don't, we don't wanna have to submit our plans to his plans. We don't wanna lay before him uh, what our design for life is gonna be and, and put it under and within his design for our life. And so because of this, we reject Jesus as the cornerstone. Now, I know that this is kind of, it's hard to hear, but, but Jesus says something so similar to this in Matthew 7. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Here's the thing that Jesus is saying, that either you can tear it down and be rebuilt on him as the rock, or in the difficulties of life, your life will show itself to be built on sand as it is dismantled and disintegrates. Now, Jesus is loving us here. He doesn't want us to get so far along before we realize that we've been placed precariously, that we're unstable and unsteady. And so he warns us, Don't build your life on sand. And according to to verse eight, not only will people stumble over this, but it's downright offensive. This is why throughout scripture, it's the lowly, the poor, the rejects, the outcasts that are willing to come to Jesus. It's those who can with, with ease say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Things like, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. There's this repeated refrain in the scripture that says something along the lines of, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and those who are humbled will be exalted. And I think according to this passage, it could read something like this. Whoever boasts in his building will crumble, but whoever is rebuilt from the ground up will rise like a skyscraper. God knew when he laid Jesus as the cornerstone that some would behold and be built and that others would see and stumble. Listen, here is the most foundational question. What is your life built on? Will it be constructed on your career or the cornerstone? Will it be based on your investments or Emmanuel? Will it be structured on your savings or your savior? Will it be rooted in your reputation or your redeemer? Are you staking your life on your finances or on the friend of sinners? Here's the foundational question. What is your life built on, Jesus or yourself? Now, I wanna incentivize you to be rebuilt on Jesus. So so let me tell you a quick story. My wife, Alana, and I just bought a house. And when we were buying the house in the inspection process, uh, we knew that the house was built on a wood frame. And, and anybody who knows that uh, about wood frame houses, they know the primary problem with wood frame houses in Florida is termite damage. And so as we're going through this inspection process, I'm thinking, oh no, I knew this was too good to be true. The inspector is gonna crawl under there, he's gonna come back out, tell me the whole thing looks like Swiss cheese and that this house is, is condemnable. Thankfully, he didn't say that, that didn't happen. But, but what's important here is that we all know the reason why that's such a big deal is because as goes the foundation, as goes the house. Whatever is true of the foundation is indicative of the entire edifice. And so the same is true here. 
I want to look real quickly. Throughout this passage, there is this clear solidarity between Jesus as the cornerstone and us as the house being built on him. Look at this. Jesus is the living stone. Verse four, we are living stones. Verse five, Jesus is chosen and precious. Verse four, we are chosen. Verse nine, and precious. Verse seven, Jesus is rejected by people. We can expect to be rejected by people. Jesus, despite the shame, is honored. We, despite our shame, are honored. Verse seven, Jesus is the true temple. We are being built into a spiritual house. Verse five, Jesus is the great high priest and we are a royal priesthood. Verse nine, Jesus was offered as the sacrifice to God. We offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through him. Verse five. Our experience is framed and structured by Christ's experience. Our design, it it runs in parallel with Christ's design. When we see how how integrally bound up the house is with the foundation, it, it hopefully will incentivize, like I said, or encourage us to build ourselves on such a a great cornerstone. While some will stumble and crumbles and crumble, others will be built and beautified. Next, Peter wants us to see the purpose of God building and beautifying his people on earth. Okay? So the first thing I said we were gonna look at is the building of God's people. Now we're gonna look and see the beauty of God's people. Now, in contrast to those who reject Jesus, Peter kind of interweaves multiple Old Testament descriptions uh, to depict God's people. You'll see this in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I wish we had so much, I wish we had time to explore the significance of each of these terms because they're incredible. But, but the essence is clear. God is calling an undeserving people to himself so that he can shower them with mercy in order to woo the world from rejecting Jesus to embracing him as the cornerstone. It looks like this. The world will be in wonder when it sees a church that is a chosen race where all ethnicities converge together in Jesus and are defined by their unity rather than their diversity. They're not divided. They form a new race united in Christ. When the church looks like a royal priesthood of people connecting the presence of God to their neighbors through passionate prayer, when the church looks like a holy nation of people that are set apart resembling Jesus in their worship and work, when the church looks like a people for his own possession, people who have goodness and mercy following them all the days of their life, like Psalm 23 says. There's something so incredibly attractive about a community that lives out of these descriptions, that embodies them before a city, before a watching world. Now listen, those of us who believe in Jesus, who have been rebuilt on Jesus, we are not innately better than those who reject him. That's super important for us to understand. In fact, verse nine emphasizes God's activity, God's moving towards us in which we're passive, 
It describes God's movement towards us as those who are chosen and called. But for what purpose? It goes on, it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We live to debunk the misconception that God is is stingy and stern about his mercy towards sinners. I love the way Ray Ortland Jr. puts it about his church. He says, we offer this church to our community with all our failings and all our struggles as living proof that Jesus can love anybody. We show and tell our neighbors that God is merciful to the least and the lost. That God beautifies his people to show off his excellencies in them. It's kind of like this. You probably couldn't tell, uh, but I don't really go to the gym that often. And even though I've not been there that often, I still know this guy. You know the guy too. The guy that, that stands in front of the mirror kind of flexing his arms, just adoring his own muscular masculinity, right? And, and this guy is, is such a clear staple in the gym for us that we all have that picture in our mind right now. God flexes his muscles of mercy by choosing and saving a people so that he can put us on display as trophies of his goodness. I love verse 10 because it's a quote from Hosea 2, which in the context, Hosea 2 is about an adulterous people. But God chose them and married them to himself in mercy. Look at it with me. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear this? The church is God's trophy wife. We we exist as trophies of his goodness and mercy. He puts us on display for the world to see so that the world will know that this God loves sinners. It's such good news that, that the purpose of God beautifying us as his people is to show his excellencies off to the world. We're set on display so that those who are far off can see that nobody is beyond the reach, beyond the scope of God's redemptive grace. Now, his building project, it won't be finished. It's still under construction until every single one of his chosen stones has been built in to the spiritual house. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, the church is a colony of heaven in the country of death. I think this is why Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because his church is gonna be showing the mercy of God to a watching world. Now, my dad is a firefighter and what that means is he sends me videos all the time of things burning down. Um, now, I don't know if that's a firefighter thing or not. Probably not because I love it too. And so maybe it's a man thing or something like that. I have no clue. But, but in other words, he sends me these videos and we watch them and we talk about them and they're great. Um, he sent me a more tragic one recently. Some of y'all probably heard about this. Uh, a Serbian Orthodox church building, a cathedral in Manhattan burned basically to the ground. And it was this beautiful historic cathedral built in 1855 uh, and and it burned and it's basically nothing left. Now, as I was reading about this, I I noted that the church that meets within that cathedral is planning to still worship together 
and hold services, but on a, in a different location. And, and I was thinking about this, this sermon in this text, and I was thinking about how, how amazing it is that, that although it's tragic that this gorgeous building burned to the ground, God's project, the church, it's, it's not a physical building with an address, but a spiritual building sent to address the world about God's goodness and mercy. And in closing, I want to think about how Peter's whole purpose in this passage was to answer this question. How are we built and beautified as God's people? I think verse four puts it so simply for us. As you come to him, as we continually, repeatedly, daily come to Jesus, we are built and beautified. We're constructed and consecrated as God's project for showing the world his goodness and mercy. As we come to Jesus and praise his excellency, and as we're sent out to proclaim his excellency, we ourselves are built and beautified into a people who resemble his excellency. I love this. Psalm 16, which I believe Jesus took on his own lips, says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. If you would, pray with me. Father, you are a great architect in designing the blueprint of redemption. That, you would be, that we would be built on your son Jesus, our cornerstone. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would gather living stones from among us this morning to construct into your spiritual house. Father, make much of your mercy by pouring it out on us today. And let us live lives as recipients of that mercy in a mercy-starved world. We ask these things in Jesus, our great cornerstone's name. Amen.